The sermon you are about to hear was recorded at Grace Baptist Church, Cape Coral, Florida. For additional sermons and more information, visit our website at truegraceofgod.org. Most motivated students want to do all that they can to get high scores on their tests and on their assignments. And as every teacher can attest, once the papers and the tests are graded, the students are always looking for ways that they can up the score that they're originally giving. They're always pleading their case for certain answers that may not be exactly right, but they think are close enough that it merits partial credit. I know when I was a student, I did that, did that to virtually every teacher that I ever had. As a teacher, I've been on the receiving end of those kinds of arguments. And typically, they go something like this. I know that the answer is not completely correct, but could I at least get partial credit? I know that I was supposed to give you five things in this answer, and I only gave you three, but doesn't that count for something? And the student wants partial credit. As a student... That line of reasoning always made perfect sense to me. I never understood why teachers couldn't see it. As a professor, sometimes it's made sense to me, and whenever I could, I have tried to give partial credit when some of the things on the answer might apply. Partial credit is a way of life in the classroom. Students often can successfully argue their case that though their answer's not completely right, it's not completely wrong. At least it's close to being right and warrants reconsideration. However, when it comes to our relationship with God, there is no partial credit. God doesn't grade on a curve. When we fail to keep our Creator's commandments, He requires an accounting for all of that failure. Pastor Jared read earlier from James chapter 2, and I want to read again one verse from that selection where James says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. What this means is that there is no partial credit with God. When you obey God partially, you know what you've done? You've disobeyed Him completely. We see this principle graphically illustrated in the book of Judges, particularly in the first section of that Old Testament book. Last week, we began to look at the book of Judges. It's the seventh book in the Bible. And this morning, we want to continue by starting to walk through it verse by verse, section by section. And we do so by looking at the first section that starts in chapter 1, verse 1, and goes through chapter 2, verse 5. It's found on page 200 in the Bibles that are provided for you in the chairs in front of you. I encourage you to get a copy of God's Word in front of you, open up to the book of Judges, and follow along. If you don't do that, you're probably going to be bored to tears for the next 45 minutes. But if you will do that, and you'll look into God's Word then you can be sure God is speaking to you because God still speaks to people today through His Word. And I pray the Spirit will take this Word and cause us to understand and heed what God is saying to us. So I'm going to read beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, 
of the book of Judges, and we're going to continue down through the first part of chapter 2. So hear the word of the Lord as I read it aloud. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and cut, caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country and the Negev and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron, which now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, and they defeated Sheshai and Hyman and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, and he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them, and the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz, and the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibliam. In its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo in its villages. 
for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal. So the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or Alab or of Akzib or of Helba or of Athik or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites and the inhabitants of that land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemath and Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Heres, in Ajalon, and in Shalabim. But the hand of the Lord of Joseph, but the house, hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah, and upward. Chapter 2. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I have brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. When you obey God partially, you disobey Him completely. The opening verse of this book points us backward. It points us to Joshua and to the conquest of the land of promise that God raised Joshua up to lead. Joshua was the commander of the armies of Israel. He was the assistant of Moses. When Moses died, God told Joshua to take the people and to possess the land. The nation of Israel, as you recall, was divided into 12 tribes. Those 12 tribes took their names from the 12 sons of Jacob. Now Joseph, one of the sons of Jacob, did not have a tribe named after him, but rather his two sons had what was called half-tribes named after them, Ephraim and Manasseh. Each of the 12 tribes were allotted a portion in the land of promise, and they were given instructions by God to go and take their inheritance that he was giving to them and to do so by completely driving out the pagan idolatrous nations who were inhabiting it. What I want us to see first from our text this morning is that God commanded the Israelites to completely dispossess the nations of Cana and to do so by faith. He called them to remove the nations completely and to do it by trusting him. Again, verse 1 
of the book says, after the death of Joshua. We get a summary of what God raised Joshua up to do, to be the commander of the armies of Israel, in the first chapter of the book that bears his name. It's right before Judges. If you turn back about 20, 25 pages or so, you can actually see it. And I want to read to you the first nine verses of the book of Joshua because this summarizes how God positioned Joshua, what he wanted Joshua to do, the nation of Israel to do, in taking the land. Hear it as I read it. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the land of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I've given to you, just as I promised to Moses. And then he describes the dimensions of the land that he's going to give to them. In verse 5, he continues, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. God promises to give his people this land. This territory where they will come and live as a possession from his hand to them. He promises to give them victory. When he first called Abraham, when Abraham's name was Abram, and said, I'm going to make of you the father of many nations, he promised that he would give to Abraham's offspring this land where his people could inhabit. He reiterated this promise to Moses and now, as we've just read, to Joshua saying, arise, go over the Jordan, the river, you and all the people of Israel to the land that I am giving you. He says, every place that your foot lands across the Jordan is going to be a place that I'm giving to you. It's my gift to you just he says as i promised moses their inheritance of the promised land had been made available to them through the promise of god it was not because of their strength it was not because they deserved it they receive it as a gift from god now consequently As God gives them this promise, he then commands them to obey his word in proceeding to inherit the promise. He calls them to courageously do all that he has said. Only be strong and courageous. Be careful to keep all of the law that I have commanded you. God basically said, here's my promise to you. I'm going to give you a great land. And here is my commandment to you. Be strong. Be courageous in obeying what I've said 
to take possession of, those land, of that land. We can summarize this by noting that God told them to completely drive out all of the pagan nations that were currently inhabiting the land of Cana. He told them to do this not as a matter of imperialism, not as a matter of ethnic cleansing. He told them to do this so that they would not be ensnared in the idolatrous practices of those pagan nations. You see, this is not even primarily a military conquest. It's primarily a spiritual conquest that employs military might to attain that goal. God is concerned for his people. He's concerned that if they leave the pagan nations to live in that land he's giving them, that those pagan practices of those nations will begin to ensnare them. Moses warned them of this specifically in Deuteronomy chapter 7 before they crossed over the land, the Jordan River into the land. Verses 2 through 4, he spells out God's will for them. He puts it like this. When the Lord your God gives the nations of Canaan over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You must make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. Now there's an important spiritual principle here in the way that God directs his people to inhabit the land. He promises to give it to them, then he commands them to be courageous and take it. The command is, take the land, defeat the enemies. The Israelites are obligated to obey that command. But there will be no obedience without courage without strength, because what they're called upon to do is very difficult. The nations, these armies of these nations that exist in Canaan, they're fierce. If you go back and read Numbers 13, when Moses led the people out of Egypt into the wilderness, they sent spies into the land of Cana to check it out. You remember? There were 12 of them. Ten of them came back. All of them came back. So this is an awesome land, flowing with milk and honey great. Ten of them said, yeah, it's great, but they're giants there. <laughs> we're like grasshoppers, these people. They will kill us if we try to go and take the land. In other words, it's going to take courage. It's going to take something we don't have. We're going to have to be strong if we're going to take this land because there are formidable enemies there. Where does the courage to keep this commandment come from? How can God's people be strong and courageous to do what God commands in the face of what appears to be overwhelming odds? It comes from faith. Faith in God's promises. The Israelites will never take the land of Cana unless they first take God at His word. They have to be people believing God and from that confidence in God being strengthened and made courageous in order to do His will. This is how God causes people to live still today. He gives us great, precious promises. And He says, believe me. Take me at my word. And then He gives us His commandments to obey. 
and the courage to obey his commandments, to live obedient lives, will only arise from faith in God to do everything that he's promised to do. So we have promise, faith, courage, obedience. That's how it works. These are the ingredients for spiritually successful and victorious lives. Brothers and sisters, this is precisely how God calls us to live in every area of our lives. Let me give you just one example of how it works. So you go to work tomorrow, and your boss or your business associate, your colleague comes to you and says, hey, we got a problem here. I need you to fabricate this report. Because if you don't do that, it's going to be disastrous. And perhaps even puts pressure on you with veiled threats of how your life is going to be miserable if you don't do that. Or you're a child of God. You've sworn allegiance to a king. And you know your king says you shall not bear false witness. You shall speak the truth in love. So what do you do? And what do you need in that situation where you've got the threat of maybe loss of employment versus the responsibility to obey your God? What do you need? Encourage, don't you? Encourage to be able to say, no, I'm not going to do what you're asking me to do because it violates the will of my God. Where are you going to get such courage? Where's that courage going to come from? You're just going to muster it up in yourself? That'll never work. That courage will be fueled by faith in the promises that God has made to you. Promises like Romans 8, 28. We know that all things, God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. You say, I love God. He's called me according to his purpose. He's promised he's going to work this mess for my good. Or like Romans 8, 32, that God who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If I lose my job, will God give me what I need? And with the faith in those promises operating, courage rises for you to be able humbly to look your boss, your colleague, your business associate in the eye and say, you know what? I'm not going to do that. It goes against what my king, what my Lord, who has come to me, saved me, has made known to me to be his will. And you leave the consequences to God. Most of chapter 1 in Judges reads like a military field report after a campaign where the officers get together and they review what happened and they write it up and file it away. We see the efforts engaged by the tribes of Israel. Most of the tribes that are mentioned here, most of the tribes of Israel are mentioned here in their effort to complete the conquest that had begun under Joshua. When they asked, in verse 1, who should go up first? God said, Judah. So in verses 2 through 20, what we have is a military field report of Judah's conquest of the land that God had allotted to them. What we see in those verses is that Judah led the way and did pretty well. Did pretty well. Their conquest, their initiative is summarized in verse 4. 
Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. And then there's one of a couple of vignettes that are told to us. In verses 5 through 7, there's this story of the king of Bezek. Adonai Bezek, it means the Lord of Bezek. He escaped, and they chased after him, and they caught him. And when they caught him, they cut off his thumbs, they cut off his big toes so that he can't wield a weapon against them, so he can't run away from them, and he can't charge them. And it's interesting, when they deport him to Jerusalem, where he dies, he dies with this testimony on his lips. Seventy kings whose thumbs and toes I've cut off have begged crumbs from my table, and now the Lord God is repaying me. This pagan king had a sense of the righteousness of God in doing to him what he deserved. There's another little vignette found in verses 11 through 15. It's a touching one in many respects. Caleb, who is leading the forces of Judah, makes an offer that if any of his men will go down and secure the city of kiriath sefer that he will give his daughter to that man in marriage. And so here is a man who's decided he wants that daughter for his wife. And so he goes and he captures that city. Othniel comes back to Caleb. Caleb gives him his daughter as a wife. Not only that, gives him land and gives together with his wife upper and lower springs. Othniel is a man that we're going to meet again in chapter 3. He's the first judge God raises up to deliver the Israelites from their enemies. We see, however, that with the conquest of Judah that seems to be successful on so many levels, there's nevertheless a blemish. It's not perfect. It's marred. If you're not careful in reading the military report, you can almost just kind of glance off what is said in verse 19. Look at it again. After listing victory after victory, the author says, And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, because they had chariots of iron. Interesting. All in all, the campaign of Judah had done pretty well. They had removed the Canaanites and the Perizzites, they took full possession of the hill country, giving them plenty of land in which to settle. But what's hinted at in verse 19 with regard to Judah becomes explicit in the further field reports of the other tribes mentioned in this chapter. Whereas Judah led the way and did pretty well, the record of the other tribes that follow makes clear that all of the Israelites only partially obeyed the Lord. Let's just kind of quickly go over these as we read them earlier. In verse 21, we see the record of the tribe of Benjamin. And notice how it is described. The people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. You see that phrase? Did not drive out. It's going to be repeated throughout the rest of this chapter. Verses 22 through 29 give us a record of the 
sons of Joseph, the house of Joseph, the two half-tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. And they go to this city of what would become called Bethel, which was formerly and at that time called Luz. They spy it out. They see a man coming out of the city and they turn him into a traitor to his own people. And they say, hey, we'll deal nicely with you if you will show us the way into the city. He does that. They take the city. And then this man goes out into the region of the Hittites, builds another city that he names Luz, and continues on his pagan ways there. Verse 27, you see that Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean or its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibliam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. And then, for good measure, in verse 28, he simply says, they did not drive them out completely. Here's the testimony. The house of Joseph. They went to possess their allotment, but they did not completely drive out the enemies. Well, in the case of what happened at Bethel, we have the first clear reference to the specific ways that the Israelites failed to obey God completely. Verse 24 in our English Standard Version renders their words this way. They say to the man from Luz, please show us the way into the city and we will deal kindly with you. But that's actually a pretty weak way of rendering what they actually said because the language of Hebrew in which this is recorded employs the word covenant in how they speak to this man from Luz. Listen to how Daniel Block has translated this sentence. They said to him, we will demonstrate loving kindness or covenant loyalty to you. What are they doing? The very thing God told them not to do. They're entering into a covenant with this idolatrous man who goes out then, rebuilds the city, different place, same pagan worship, same pagan altars, and continues to dwell even to the day when this book was written. Verse 30, Zebulun. The tribe of Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or of Nahalal, or, so the Canaanites lived among them. Asher, the tribe of Asher, verses 31 and 32. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Alab or of Akzib or Helba or Afik or Rehob. Verse 33, Naphtali, the tribe of Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemeth or of Beth Anath, so they lived among the Canaanites. And then finally, when you come to Dan, at the end of the chapter, verses 34 through 36, we read that not only did they not drive out the Amorites, the Amorites drove them out. You can live in the hills, we got the plains. Don't come to the plains. Do you see the sorry progression in these field reports? Do you see how it progressed? The Canaanites first lived among the Israelites in verse 30. Then we read in verses 32 and 33, the Israelites lived among the Canaanites. Until finally in verse 34, the Canaanites won't even let the Israelites live among them and say, you've got to live at a distance from us. Stay in the hills. God's people who had been given clear instructions, only partially obeyed his commandments. The 
author of these field reports simply gives them to us as a matter of historical record. He doesn't really make any moral judgments in the way that he tells what happens. And if we didn't know the backstory of what God had specifically commanded the Israelites to do, we might even be willing to judge the military campaign as rather successful. I mean, after all, end of the chapter, Israelites are living in the land of Canaan. They've found a place to call their own. They're no longer dwelling in tents. And in many respects, when we read through this account, we might even applaud them for the military strategy that is revealed. For what seems to be on so many levels just common sense and prudence in how they conducted their campaigns. For example, verse 19 again. Judah did not drive out the people of the plains because they had chariots of iron. Now, iron chariots don't mean much to us today, but they were like the F-16s of the ancient world. And Judah looked at that, and they said, man, we can't compete with that. And so isn't it prudent that we not even try? Doesn't it make sense that we not engage? Verse 24 The house of Joseph makes a covenant with a Hittite, allowing him to rebuild a city with its pagan altars in exchange for entrance into the city of Bethel. Now, that's just common military strategy, isn't it? I mean, they they got the conquest, they got their objective accomplished by entering into a deal with this man. Verse 28, Manasseh did not drive out the Canaanites from certain cities in choosing by choosing instead to make of them forced labor, as did Zebulon in verse 30. I mean, cheap, cheap labor makes good economic sense, doesn't it? But why kill them? Use them. Turn them into slaves. Economically, you might say, well, that, that's prudent. If we didn't know the marching orders of these people, we might be tempted to judge their military campaigns as overwhelmingly successful. Not perfect, but obviously pretty good. Even marked by commendable military and economic prudence. But because we do know what God told them to do, we cannot make such judgments. In fact, as the rest of the story of Judges makes so plain, their partial obedience to God brought sorrows and pains upon them and their children and their children's children for generations to come. What might be common sense in the world way of thinking is nothing less than unbelief and disobedience when it contradicts God's clearly revealed will. Brothers and sisters, do you ever find it challenging, difficult, to submit to God's way and do what he says in the face of what appears to be common sense that would suggest you should go otherwise? You ever do that with your money? How you handle your money? God says, bring all the tithe into the storehouse and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Malachi 3.10. God says, you do this. Common sense says, 
I can do more with $100 than I can do with 90. Faith says God can do more with 90 than I can do with 100. Jesus says, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running together will be put into your lap. But with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. Luke 6, 38. Common sense says, the more that I keep, the more that I will have. Faith says, the more that I give, the more I'm given. The battle lines between what seems to be common sense and what is God's clearly revealed will transcends the issue of money. It goes into every area of life where conventional wisdom will suggest to you, this is the course you ought to take. Everybody knows that. And God's word says, no, that is the course you should take because of who I am, who I promised to be to you, what I have said to you when those battle lines emerge in our minds the challenge is to submit ourselves to God's will resisting what appears to be common sense and the only way we'll do that is by coming back to a humble reliance upon dependence upon faith in what God has said we got to take God at his word and let faith fuel our courage to obey his commandments completely. The tribes of Israel failed at just this point. Though they are indeed in the land, they have not precisely obeyed God as he commanded. The text makes this crystal clear in the first five verses of chapter 2. Because now the Lord shows up and God renders his judgment on these field reports. We see in verse 1, the angel of the Lord is the spokesman. This could well be the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. This could be the Son of God who comes on a visitation to speak to God's people. But whether that's the case or not, he is certainly one who speaks in behalf of God. He speaks for God. And in doing so, he reminds them of God's grace as he judges them for their disobedience. You find it interesting that we're giving, giving a little overview of the course that he traveled to get to the Israelites? Isn't it interesting? Why did he come up from Gilgal? Is that where the angel of the Lord lives? No. Because Gilgal is right next to Jericho, which was the first city when they crossed the Jordan River that God gave them to take. And it was at Gilgal that God, before they took the first city, entered into a covenant with his people. A covenant of grace and mercy, promising again, I'm going to be your God. I'm going to give you this land. And you are going to be my people. So when the author tells us that the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal, he's reminding them that the God of the covenant, the God who has saved them, the God who is for them, who's promised to always be with them, is the one who's addressing them. With his words, he reminds them of his saving power and delivering them from Egypt, of his promise to give them this land where they now dwell. And then, he reminds them of their obligation to him. Their obligation to keep his commandments. In verse 2, he says, but you've not done this. 
what have you done? What have you done? He stands before these people in their partial obedience. And he says, you've completely disobeyed me. You have not done what I specifically told you to do. Then in verse 3, he tells them that they must now live with the consequences of their disobedience, which is going to cause them ongoing challenges and difficulties for generations. So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. What God reveals is that partial obedience is complete disobedience. When they followed common sense, conventional wisdom, it meant that they left God's will undone, which was utter failure and disobedience and lack of faith. He reveals to them that the things that they failed to do because it seemed like they simply could not do were in fact because they would not do. They thought, we can't. God says, let me put this in context for you. You wouldn't. It wasn't a question of power and ability. I'm God. I'm with you. It's a question of your willingness to take me at my word, to humbly pursue the course I prescribe. And go back to verse 19 in chapter 1. When Judah failed to drive out the Canaanites on the plains, it is said that they didn't do it because these Canaanites had chariots of iron. It says they could not do it. They were convinced in their minds they could not. They didn't have the strength. They didn't have the resources. They didn't have the weapons. So it simply made sense for them not to try. But God reveals the real truth. It wasn't that they could not. It was that they would not. And think about it. Think about it. If you know the story of Joshua, when God led them into the land of promise, the very first city that they took, you remember what it was? Jericho. If you don't know the story, I encourage you to go back and read it. Chapters 3, 4, and 5, I think, in Joshua. And the way that they took Jericho wasn't dependent upon the military prowess of the Israelites. March around the city. My command, my orders, shout, the walls will come down. And the walls of Jericho fell down, and the Israelites didn't fire one arrow, they didn't throw one spear. Now they come to the Canaanites in the plain. Oh, these guys got chariots. We can't do that. You see what's going on? There cannot is in reality a will not. They are unwilling to take God at His word. They're unwilling to believe God's promises. They're unwilling in the light of those promises to find courage to move forth in what might appear to be a suicide mission, but they know if God is for us, who can be against us? They've lost that. What God commands, He supplies. Where God leads, 
He provides. Now, when we get that and we live with that thinking and that orders our lives, brothers and sisters, we're going to learn to pray like the early church father, Augustine, who said, Oh, Lord, give what you command and command whatever you will. That's the way to live. What has God called us to be in his word? What does he say to us? How has he told us to pursue life? It might seem like death to you. It might seem like it's so contrary to prudence and common sense to you. But when God has spoken in his word, we can be sure that he will give to us what we need need to pursue obedience to that word. What areas do you find yourself tempted to justify disobedience to God by saying, I just can't. I just can't. When in reality, you know in your heart of hearts, it's because you will not. Tim Keller has helpfully identified three areas that he rightly, I believe, says are particularly challenging for many Christians at just this point. The first is forgiveness. If you're a Christian, you know that you have been forgiven of every last one of your sins because of what Jesus has done for you on the cross. And you also know that God has called us to forgive others who've sinned against us, any trespass against us, as we've been forgiven. Have you ever found it hard to forgive? Have things been done to you that have just left you so wounded and bruised and scarred, bitter, you think, I just, I can never forgive, I can never forgive. Have you ever said those words? The call that God gives to all of his people is that we're to forgive as we have been forgiven. And the way that we will find the courage to let go of the bitterness to open our hearts to be softened again by the power of the gospel is to remember the truth of that gospel. That what anybody has ever done or could do to me doesn't begin to compare to what I have done against God, which His Son has once and for all time completely removed from me by His death. And having been forgiven so much, Am I unwilling to forgive what is comparatively so little? Don't tell yourself you cannot forgive. If you're harboring unforgiveness, brothers, sisters, it's because you will not. And God calls you. He calls you to take Him at His word. Come back to the truth of what He's given you in His Son and find strength courage there to begin to say I'm letting this go I forgive the second area is in the difficult realm of telling the truth when it's hard we're told in God's word to speak the truth in love but oftentimes we fear to speak the truth and we give in to cowardice because we're afraid of what that might do in exposing us what will people think we're afraid of what it might do to others and how it will make them feel and how it will hurt them and we don't want to hurt them. 
And so we skirt the truth and we hide. We say, I just couldn't. I just couldn't tell the truth. I just couldn't come clean. I just couldn't say truth. When in reality, we should be saying, I just won't. I'm not willing. And in those situations, as we deal honestly with ourselves, we come back again to the truth of what God's revealed to us. That in Christ, we are completely accepted. In Christ, our sins have been completely judged, publicly judged. And our shame and our guilt has been carried away. And that because of Christ, God loves me with an everlasting love that will never be broken. And He sets me free to speak truth in that love. The third area is temptation. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape. You may be able to endure it. Do you ever feel like temptation comes to you with overwhelming power? It's like an elephant on your chest. (laughs) You think, I can't resist. I can't stop. I can't let go. What's the truth? I won't. I will not. See, God says there's no temptation that is beyond your ability to resist. And yet, when you fall into patterns, especially of sin, it can feel like it's inevitable. And you can let yourself begin to say, I just cannot. When in reality, what we need to be saying is, I'm unwilling. I will not. And in confessing that to God, you come back to the gospel of His grace and the power of a crucified, risen Savior, remembering that this God who raises dead people is your God. He's for you. And He's given to you in Christ and through the body of Christ, the church, all of the resources you need to get help to stand against the temptations that feel like you must inevitably give in to them. When God speaks these words of judgment to His people there at Bokim, how do they respond? They respond with sorrow and with sacrifice. Verses 4 and 5, they weep. They even give the city its name, Bokim, which means place of weeping. And then they offer a sacrifice. Why? Because they know they've sinned. And they know that sin must be paid for. And so in complying with what God has revealed about the way that sin must be paid for through blood atonement, they offer up a sacrifice acknowledging God. This is what our sins deserve. We need you to take our sins away. That's always the appropriate response for God's people when God comes to us speaking His Word to us in convicting power. To feel our sin deeply so that we weep over it so that we 
refuse to become accustomed to it or give ourselves a pass in it. And then to look to the place where God has made provision for atonement. This sacrifice that they made, all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament were designed by God to point to the one ultimate coming final sacrifice who is Jesus Christ our Lord. Who came to offer up Himself in behalf of His people to carry our sins away. In this opening section of Judges, what we see is a stage being set, not simply for the rest of the book, but for the rest of the whole Bible. God gives His commandments and He requires obedience. God also gives promises to us that we rest in by faith so that we will seek to obey. God's commandments require complete obedience. And yet, we know we don't render to Him on our best day perfect obedience. Our obedience is never complete in and of itself. And yet, God shows us when you partially obey Him, you completely disobey Him. So we see this tension in God's relationship with His people. He's promised to be holy for them, wholly devoted to them as their God. I will be your God. And He calls them to be wholly devoted to Him. You will be my people. Here's my will. Do it. And yet, His wholehearted Faithfulness toward them is met with half-hearted devotion in return to Him. And so there's a tension because He's not going to break His promise. He's not going to go against Himself, but neither is He going to have a half-hearted people. He's not going to have a disobedient people. So how is the tension resolved? The tension is finally resolved. When God sends His Son to be a representative of His people who completely keeps every last one of God's commandments without fail. And He does it as a substitute. He does it for those who will trust in Him. And for those who trust in Him, He lays down His life on the cross pay for our sins once and for all time to carry them away from us so that now the obedience that God requires, He has supplied in His Son, Jesus Christ. And the good news is, everyone who trusts in Him will be accepted by God, not on the basis of your performance, on the basis of Christ's performance. And in Christ. You look to what God says to do and be, and you give yourself to that. And though when you measure it just by itself, you say, well, I still haven't obeyed completely. You can be sure that in Christ it is accepted because Christ has obeyed completely. That's good news. That's good news for everybody who knows that you have not lived the way God's called you to live. It's good news if God has... Brought to your thinking this morning, you know, I, I'm just, I'm guilty of partial obedience. And this text says that's complete disobedience to God. 
The good news is there is one who has completely obeyed. Come to him. Trust him. Friend, are you trusting Christ? Are you clinging to the hope that your good efforts, your partial obedience is going to somehow get you partial credit? There is no partial credit with God. What there is, is a substitute. A provision of righteousness. A provision of perfect obedience that He has provided for us in His Son, Jesus Christ. So trust Christ. Live in Christ. Hope in Christ. Find what you need before God in Christ and let the faith that you have in Christ breed courage to look to His will and pursue it no matter what the obstacles or the challenges or the onslaught against that path. Because you know that in having Christ, you have everything you need. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for the provisions of grace in Jesus. Thank you for not leaving us on our own. Thank you for not leaving us hopeless in our disobedience. Show us Christ. Build us up in Christ. Help us to trust in Him. For we pray in His name. Amen.